1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. John Ekdal is a conservative Twitterer. And uh, he's a writer. I think he used to write I think he used to write for Red State, but I don't recall. Um, he does most of his work, though, now on the Twitter machine. And he says, what's interesting about these types of frustrations that the vaccinated have towards the unvaccinated is that they're almost always blue staters. What's up with that? Right? You're living in a blue state with a blue state governor and blue state restrictions. Go yell at your governor. Right? Uh, I mean, think logically about this. I know, I know. But think logically. You're in D.C., you're in New York City, you're a journalist, and you're yelling at some regular people in Florida, in Texas, because your mayor or your governor makes you wear a mask in a restaurant. I don't know, maybe try pointing the finger a little closer than a thousand miles away from you. Like, maybe? Let me bounce over here to Seth. Hello, Seth. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well today, Pete. How are you? I'm all right. What's up? Hey, I was I was calling to answer some of your unvaccinated questions, and then I had a question. Yeah. I had something I wanted you or Jensen or somebody to research, or maybe y'all knew the answer when I get done with the unvaccinated questions. All right. One, one, I'm not vaccinated because I have the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. I was very sick for almost five months, Ooh. but I'm over it. Um, and. To me, it doesn't matter whether someone gets vaccinated or not. You, the reason you got the vaccine was you did what any rational person would do. You did a risk analysis. Mm -hmm. You said, okay, so I have these comorbidities, and these are my chances of uh, getting seriously ill or dying from it. Mm -hmm. So you decided it was in your best interest to do it. But I think for a lot of the people who aren't getting vaccinated, they look at it, and let's disregard the ones that have natural immunity, because right. we know the vaccine does nothing for the those with natural immunity. Right. But the ones who haven't had it yet, they look at it and they say, well, all of the data that they had given us up to this point says that if we don't, if, if we're younger and we're healthy mm-hmm. and we're not extremely overweight, the likelihood of us dying is less than 1%. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, we don't have all of the the information that you need to make a completely informed decision about the vaccine. While vaccines have been out for a long time, I mean, let's be honest, this one's been out for eight months, nine months. Well, and yeah, but no it's one not, knows what the, well, but, but they also, I mean, the, the vaccine has been in development for over like a decade. Cause they started doing, or, they started doing the research for SARS. Like when the original SARS, uh, you know, swept through Asia. That's when a lot of this stuff started getting researched. The mRNA stuff, it's been around for a while. It hasn't, I agree, it hasn't been, you know, out there like to us, but that's, uh, that That was, the. I mean, the research existed before. That's how they were able to get it to market so fast, is that, right, Right. the work had already been but, done. But for some, but for me personally, I'm more into real world, data. Mm-hmm. I would like to know what's going to happen after it's gotten into the real world, into people's arms. How are people in a year? How are they in five years? Mm-hmm. How are they in 10 years? Because let's just be honest, if you watch TV, you know, hey, did you do this or that five years ago, 10 years ago? Well, you may have be part of the class action suit. Mm-hmm. That I think that's the mindset of a lot of people is five years from now, if there's no problem, I'm guessing these people are going to have no issues 
most of them are going to have no issues taking the shot. Yeah, I, so I, I, I completely agree that there are um, there's a cohort of people that definitely believe exactly as you just uh, laid out. Yeah, they, they're looking and like, I don't know the long-term effects. And that's a fair, that's a fair uh, point. Like, I, I don't know what the long-term effects are. I don't. And But that's the thing. Like, I keep coming back to this. We're either practicing battlefield medicine or we're not. And... They need, you know, we're, we're going to find out whether I made the right call or not years down the road, just like the early adopters of LASIK eye surgery, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, people didn't know whether their eyes were going to fall out. I mean, the Simpsons episode did uh, a joke about that. You know, oh, who knew 20 years ago? Like, somebody, they're in, like, they got a time machine. They, you know, all these people had their eyes fall out because you know, of LASIK. And, uh, like, <laughs> yeah, who knew that was the long term side effect, right? No, I, I like, I get that argument. I do get that argument, but um, I don't. Uh, but I, I don't think that that is, I, again, I don't think that the risks of an unknown something way down the road is greater than the risk of the thing that is here right now. Possibly, but again, it's like I said, the, what we're being told is the likelihood of dying from it, mm-hmm. if you don't have other issues, is still extremely low. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it was something in which... Five percent. I don't know. Five percent. Ten percent. Fifteen percent of the people who were catching it were dying. I think you'd see a whole different thing. I think you'd see a lot more people going out there going, "Okay, well, uh, you know, one in ten or one in twenty chance of me dying. You know, that's a lot bigger than one in five hundred. So, which is what actually I submit is what that's what actually drove more people to get vaccinated. Um, more uh, over the last month or so was because of the Delta variant. They saw because it's more contagious, they saw more people getting it. And so when you start seeing more people getting it and the numbers, the case counts are going through the roof, it it prompts a fear, right? And people then are like, oh, wow, this seems more contagious. I might need to go get the shot. But also keep in mind, I'm well aware, and I wish that our leaders would as well keep this in mind, that we don't even get like half of the population to get the flu shot every year, right? So like, there's always going to be holdouts on vaccinations or flu shots or whatever you want to call them. Like there, there's always a population that doesn't think that they, I mean, there, there are people that believe that if they take the flu shot, they get the flu. So, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know how to combat that, uh, that kind of uh, belief system. Well, Hey, I've got a quick question for you and maybe, you know, the answer. And if not, I'd like for y'all to see if you could find out. So, I've read reports, I've seen them, they've been out for a while in other countries like Israel and the U.K., that they have a a large percentage of the people who are being hospitalized who have had the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether it's a statistical anomaly because more people have had it, and that's why. But then I was talking to one of my friends who happened to be a triage nurse at one of the local hospitals, and she told me, that some of the local hospitals, if not all of them, considered you unvaccinated if you had had the shot, your second shot, more than 90 days ago. And if that's the case, and if that's, and if that is, well, she's one of the triage nurses and she said they had a, they've had calls about how, or uh, meetings about who is vaccinated and who isn't according to their medical charts. Mm-hmm. And according to her, she's saying that some of the local hospitals, and it may be national, that they're saying uh, if it's been more than 90 days, then they want to consider you unvaccinated. And if that's the case, that would explain also 
why the United States is allegedly only have 10% uh, vaccinated folks in the hospital compared to some of these other countries that we hear about. Right. And this is there needs to be some accounting. And that's why, you know, I was you know pointing out with Joe Biden, like, you know, he comes out there and he says, we're going to talk about the facts. And yet then he doesn't address actual arguments like, for example, what's happening in Israel? How do we explain what is going on in Israel? You're talking about a population that's, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood. It's north of like 85 percent are vaccinated. And among the elderly, more vulnerable populations, it's 100 percent almost. So what is happening over there? Why is that occurring? Um, and all, they're all breakthrough cases, apparently. But yeah, so the question you're asking, Seth, is a very good one. Um, how do they define unvaccinated? How do the local hospitals define unvaccinated? Is it, as you said, anybody who hasn't had a shot within the last 90 days? Because by that... The path ahead, even with the Delta variant, is not nearly as bad as last winter. What makes it incredibly more frustrating is that we have the tools to combat COVID-19 and a distinct minority of Americans, supported by a distinct minority of elected officials, are keeping us from turning the corner. These pandemic politics, as I refer to, are, are are making people sick, causing unvaccinated people to die. We cannot allow these actions to stand in the way of protecting the large majority of Americans who have done their part and want to get back to life as normal. As your president, I'm announcing tonight a new plan to require more Americans to be vaccinated to combat those blocking public health. Blocking public health, literally blaming Republicans. Death sentence. Literally blaming Republicans. Um vaccination situation from the latest census household pulse survey covering the last half of august vaccination rates of people over the age of 18 by household income shows 68 percent vaccination among the poorest the wealthier the household the higher the vaccination rate the more college the higher the vaccination rate The more Asian and white, the higher the vaccination rate. And the older, the more, uh, the higher the vaccination rate. And so what does all of that mean? It means that the people who are not getting vaccinated, yes, it includes white Trumpers, but it also includes a whole lot of poor, non-college educated, minority young folks. There was a piece at hotair.com by John Sexton. He says, my immediate reaction to all of this is that it strikes me as blatantly political, a desperate effort to change the subject from Afghanistan and the border where Biden is getting beat up. Instead, the White House wants to refocus on COVID, where their poll numbers are shaky, but still above water. It's not even a new approach to avoiding bad news. It's exactly what Governor Cuomo tried to do after multiple allegations of sexual harassment. Show people that you're still hard at work and hope that they forget about the other stuff that threatens to drag you down. The problem is that this particular approach seems designed to start a fight. Or, as Representative Dan Crenshaw put it, a full-on revolt. If you thought the pushback on mask mandates were heated, 
Just wait for the pushback on this. I don't think the White House is dumb enough to have missed that they are essentially juggling dynamite here. I think they've looked at the poll numbers. They decided that a fight like this will play well with their base. They probably also assume that this won't survive contact with the courts. But they'll get points for at least trying to own the cons. That's the play. Totally cynical, highly political and partisan, not the actions of a unifier-in-chief. The great unifier that we were promised was a lie. Was a lie. Also, this line that we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated, that doesn't even make sense. (laughs) It doesn't even make sense. Congressman Dan Crenshaw went on to Twitter. He said, our founders designed a system that treated citizens as more than just children. Our grand experiment is designed for a free people. Yes, that entails risk. Yes, I'll take risk and freedom over a paternalistic government any day. And it should be noted, a huge portion of the unvaccinated are younger minorities. So this impacts a broad range of people, not just anti-vaxxer Trump supporters, as Democrats seem to believe. Democrats are basically declaring war on everybody, not just conservatives. Let me go over here to John. Welcome to the show. John, how are you? I'm thank you. Good. What's up? Oh, I just wanted to point out that death isn't the only consequences of having COVID if you're not vaccinated. My neighbor was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. Uh, he's it's been he's two months out now and he still hasn't recovered. Now he almost died and it's uh it's laid him low for a long time. Yeah. Fortunately, he has good insurance, but as I understand it, the average COVID stay costs about $50,000. And I think Delta Airlines, taking a cue from that, decided to charge their uh, employees an extra $200 a month if they weren't vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So, but, so the... Um... So you blame, uh, I'm assuming that you know his vaccination status? Yeah, he was not not vaccinated. And, you, and he told you that? He told me that, yeah. yes. So the, um, and so I assume then that that you're making this connection, you should get the vaccine because otherwise you'll end up like this guy. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not just a matter of whether you die or not, is, yeah. is what I, the point I was trying to make. No, I agree. I, I I agree. That's long COVID. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a terrible disease to get and to recover from. Uh, if you go to the hospital, you can put on a ventilator. Even if you get off the ventilator, and most people don't, um, if yeah. you get off, yeah, you're yeah, you've got a long way to go back to not even approaching normal. Um, yeah, it's it's that again. That was why I made my decision. Uh, the long COVID stuff is that that that's I do not want to have to live with that either. Uh, but that does happen to people who also had the vaccine, right? They get, they can get COVID and long COVID as well. Uh, it's, but it's much less common. True. One of the big advantages is, in it, and you've been vaccinated, it tends to be a much less uh, Yes, severe. true. But it's, it's not, but it's not perfect. It's not foolproof. Right. But I agree. Yeah. It's a risk assessment. That's, and I made that risk assessment. It sounds like you did as well, that I'm going to take my chances with the vaccine to prevent that from happening to me. (laughs) 
All right, News Talk 1110-993 WBT. Joining me now is uh, the Senior Vice President at the John Locke Foundation, Becky Gray. Welcome back to the show. Becky, how are you? Thanks, Pete. Glad to be back with you. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you as well. So um, what's been going on in the legislature this week? Well, there there were a couple bills, I guess, that moved through um, in various states. Um, I guess the big one for me that I've been wa- uh, watching is the Emergency Management Act. Um so is there any, uh, but I, I don't have any, uh, I don't believe it's going to get the governor's signature. Uh, I also don't think that including it in the budget is going to make it any more attractive. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think you're probably right. And, of course, this has to do with reining in the governor, whoever the governor might be, reining in the governor's authority during emergencies and the authority to manage those emergencies. And, you know, Pete, this was something when it was designed and originally written into law, legislators were thinking flooding, you know, a hurricane, those kind of natural disaster emergencies where you would want one person to be in charge of making the quick decisions to get people back on their feet, to get homes restored, to get businesses back on their feet. When this was written, nobody anticipated that we would have an emergency like the COVID emergency that we've had that would go on for, gosh, you know, a year and a half now. And to give that authority, unlimited authority to one person, the governor, for an unlimited amount of time for everything from closing down the economy to ordering people to stay in their homes, um, vaccine mandates closing down businesses, again, closing schools, you know, all of the things that we've seen over the last 18 months. So there's a movement from the General Assembly that, you know, hey, we may need to update this. And they have put several proposals forward, beginning as early as last March when we were first coming under all of these restrictions that the governor, Governor Cooper, has issued by executive order. So there is a move to, to rein this in. And, you know, after a certain amount of time, say say 30 days, that the governor, again, whoever that might be, would confer with the Council of State, the other statewide elected officials. You know, if you're going to close the schools down, wouldn't you want to get some thoughts from the superintendent of public instruction? No. If you're going to close businesses down, wouldn't you want to check with the commissioner of labor? No. Why? Um, why would you want to do that? Done, this governor <laughs> has not done that and has rejected every effort that the General Assembly has put forward to rein that in. And I think you're exactly right. We do have standalone bills, again, that would rein that in. There is a provision included in the both the House and the Senate budget looking like it might make that final conference report. Governor Cooper has rejected every one of those. So kind of two quick points there with that, Pete. Number one, the response to COVID and all of the restrictions that have put it put into place are due to one person. You know, good, bad, or indifferent mm-hmm. of how you may feel about those, you can look to Governor Roy Cooper for complete responsibility for this because it has all been him. The other thing that I keep asking my friends on the left, and I would pose to Governor Cooper, how would you feel about this if, say, for example, Mark Robinson were the governor? Would you want a Republican governor to have the kind of unbridled authority that Governor Cooper has exercised during this 18 months? So I think, Um, well, I think you can get a really good hint at their answer, a real answer. I mean, 
guess they would probably say, oh, no, it would be fine. I think they would probably lie about that. But if you like, I think a real world application of your question, though, is Florida, right, where Governor DeSantis has told school boards that they can't institute mask mandates and the left is going berserk about it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah when you look at other states and how they've, they've done it um, and just, you know, from a common sense standpoint of, you know, the Council of State would be brought in to help make those decisions, to advise and to help make the decisions. And, you know, some of this stuff is, I mean, this is really strict stuff. I mean, businesses have completely gone out of business. People have lost their life savings in businesses because of the restrictions that have been put into place by, again, one person. And then after another certain amount of time, wouldn't it make sense to make some of those decisions go to the General Assembly, the 170 men and women who represent all different districts across North Carolina, different challenges that have been fought found, whether it's urban areas, rural areas, the eastern part of the state, the western part of the state, but to have that representative government, those 170 men and women, to be included in those decisions as well. But again, Governor Cooper has rejected every effort to bring what I believe is just some common sense protections in place. Yeah. Um, also, I uh, spent yesterday's program talking about this, the uh, the judge in the Leandro case. You following what happened there? I mean, it seems like he's put, I know your colleague, Dr. Terry Stoops, has done a lot of work on this uh, this topic, but it, it seems like this judge in the Leandro school funding case is, is setting the setting us on a course for a constitutional crisis in this state. Well, exactly. And of course, you know, this has to do with the funding for education and although some people want to make this a really complicated issue and how much money we should spend for education and isn't every child entitled under our constitution to a sound basic education the fact of the matter is is this is really a separation of powers question and the legislature is the branch of government that is authorized to appropriate money the judicial branch is not And so this judge is way out of line in thinking that he can appropriate money or tell the General Assembly how to appropriate money. Um, So when we talk about a constitutional crisis, although the constitutional provision for every child to have a sound basic education, there's a lot of wiggle room there on what that means and how much, you know, is, is just the money the answer to providing a sound basic education. And then there's, but to me, the more fundamental constitutional question and constitutional crisis is why is the judicial branch why is this one judge now over overstepping the legislative responsibility and what their authority is is to appropriate money so what i anticipate is the general assembly is just going to ignore this i mean you know this is not the judge's business if you will Mm -hmm. so then what happens though the judge holds them in contempt starts fining the general assembly and and then what, the, the a General Assembly just ignores that, too, and, all right, let's see him enforce it. Like, is that the is that the course? Yeah, right, yeah. I, and I don't know the answer to that. You yeah. know, this seems like um, that I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I couldn't begin to answer that question. This also sounds to me like um, the kind of thing that we, we may have some job creation here by finding <laughs> some work for some really good lawyers. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you, the people you work with, the people you care about, the people you love. My job as president is to protect all Americans. 
So tonight, I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. Some of the biggest companies are already requiring this. United Airlines, Disney, Tyson's Food, and even Fox News. Yeah, but it wasn't a political speech at all, right? Not a political speech. He just felt like throwing in Fox News for some reason. Uh, Joining me uh, again here is uh, Becky Gray. She's the senior vice president at the John Locke Foundation. So, uh, Becky, did you watch the speech last night? I I didn't, but I've certainly heard about it. Yeah, and I love the way he says, even Fox News. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, and, and, you know, that he wants you to protect yourself, but then in the second part of that sentence, he says his job is to protect you. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, shades of big brother going on here. So it's also, there's a mixed message, and Governor Cooper has been guilty of this as well, because he can't explain it either, and you heard some of it there too, which is, if the vaccines work, then why are we needing to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated? And if you are vaccinated and you're running around and you can still spread the, the virus, then why don't you need to be subjected to the testing every week like the unvaccinated are? Yeah, and what, what about the people who have had COVID, have recovered, and have the antibodies you know, what What about those folks? Um, but I think the thing that's most troubling is, you know, again, this government mandate for private companies with more than 100 workers. Um, you know, it's one thing to, as, as the governor or the president, to require federal or state employees is one thing. But when you reach into private industry, I find that I found it troubling in and of itself, and I found it very troubling as a precedent. And, you know, one of the industries here in North Carolina that they didn't really respond but were asked immediately after this announcement last night is the restaurants and the hotel workers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are industries that are already struggling to get back on their feet, and now they have these additional mandates with the – with the vaccines and the weekly testing and monitoring all of that. And so you've got businesses that are barely getting back up on their feet if, if they're lucky enough to have survived COVID, particularly in our restaurant industry. And then, you know, here you've got the federal government coming in and imposing these additional mandates. I think it's a terrible precedent to set, and it's really exactly the opposite of what we ought to be doing. We ought to be getting people back to work. We ought to get be getting the economy going again. And, you know, it, it, President Biden said, you know, he expects us to protect ourselves. Well, let us make those decisions. So you mentioned the natural immunity. This just came down. Um, Cooper Anders, or sorry, Anderson Cooper on CNN. He has Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Dr. Anthony Fauci on. Let me just play this for you because this just I just saw this within the hour. Uh, let me play this audio for you and get your reaction to it. And just and just real quickly. Um, there was a study that came out of Israel about natural immunity, and basically the headline was that natural immunity provides a lot of protection, even better than the vaccines alone. Um, how, what, are, what are people to make of that? So, so as we talk about vaccine mandates, there are, I get calls all the time. People say, I've already had COVID, I'm protected, and now the study says maybe even more protected than the vaccine alone. Should they also get the vaccine? How do you make the case to them? 
You know, that's a really good point, Sanjay. I don't have a really firm answer for you on that. That's something that we're going to have to discuss regarding the durability of the response. The one thing the paper from Israel didn't tell you is whether or not as high as the protection is with natural infection, what's the durability compared to the durability mm. of a vaccine? So, so that, but that, that doesn't answer the question either. So he says, that's, I don't have an answer for that, a really firm answer for you on that. Right. So, you know, so, so they don't, I mean, he says he doesn't have an answer. He doesn't know. So, you know, again, what about people that have, have had COVID? And, you know, we keep hearing that all these hundreds of thousands of people have had COVID. All these hundreds of thousands of people have had the Delta variant. You know, shouldn't that natural immunity be building towards a herd immunity? Um, but yet that's not, that's not being discussed. And as best I can tell, I mean, at least from the news reports, um, that's not really being addressed. It's just these mandates for people mm-hmm. to get the vaccines without consideration of some of these other things. And I'll throw in, you know, based on science. Um, so, yeah, it's a little puzzling. Yeah. Um, it's almost as if the science is in service to a particular course of action rather than figuring something out. Because, yeah, natural immunity should definitely be included in the numbers. I know your colleague, John Sanders, at the John Locke Foundation has been, you know, been beating this drum for a year and a half. Uh, I've done interviews with him about this, and it's it's super frustrating when you talk about ha- getting everybody, as uh, as many people as possible, protected. And if they have had the, the disease already, then they should have antibodies, and they should be protected, too. That should get us to herd immunity. Um so, Becky Gray, I do appreciate your time. Anything else you want to add before we let you run? Well, just a couple things that I'm watching. Even just this afternoon, there are two bills sitting on the governor's desk. One is the ensuring dignity and non-discrimination in classrooms. Some people are calling this the criminal or the um, critical race theory bill, House Bill 324. Although critical race theory is not even mentioned in the bill, um, that is sitting on his desk, and the time is running out from the 10-day time period for him to act. And then there's another bill that has to do with rioting and looting and destruction of personal property that increases the criminal penalties when that's done in conjunction with protest. Um, I think this makes sense. I think this is a, a, a good a good bill to make it increase the criminal penalty when these when protests turn to rioting and looting and destruction of people, personal property and public safety, um, really interested to see whether what the governor is going to do on this. Watching it this afternoon, he tends to do these vetoes on Friday afternoons, and the time's running out on both of these bills. So that's something we'll be watching. If there's any action, we'll have that up on carolinajournal.com this afternoon. Um, but those are just a couple things I'm watching on this Friday afternoon. Becky Gray, the Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation, johnlocke.org and carolinajournal.com. Appreciate your time. Have a great weekend, Becky. Thanks, Pete. You too. Always a pleasure to end the week with you. All right. Same here. Take care. I appreciate it. Um, Are we going to go do some news? And then when we come back, we're going to uh, get into uh, 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And uh, it's going to be kind of heavy to start with. I think it's important, though. But just a heads up, some of it might be difficult to hear initially. Um... And then we'll talk about how the society, how our society has changed, how it has impacted you. So feel free to weigh in on this at the second half of the hour. But that's coming up next on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT.